That was an excerpt from Pontius Pilate's Decision. It was composed and performed by Delphio Marsalis. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. It's really no surprise that the first and only group NEA Jazz Masters Award went to the renowned Marsalis family, a family that's produced one excellent musician after another, numbering five in all. Delphio, the third musical son in the acclaimed family after Branford and Winton, is one of the top trombonists and producers working in jazz today. Early on, Delphio was attracted to both performing and producing. He began playing the trombone when he was 13 and produced his first recording at the age of 17 for his father, jazz pianist Ellis Marsalis. Performing internationally with some of the great band leaders like Slide Hampton, Max Roach, and Elvin Jones, Delphio developed his musical chops both on the stage and in the studio. From an early age, he was interested in producing music that preserved an acoustic jazz sound. The recordings he produced for his brother Branford in the 1980s, using a rich acoustic bass sound as opposed to an amped-up bass direct, was key in changing jazz recording techniques. In fact, Delphio's production work earned him a Grammy as well as a 3M Visionary Award. Committed to arts education, Delphio founded the Uptown Music Theater as a way of preserving and passing on New Orleans' great cultural traditions to younger generations. He's also earned wide acclaim as a composer, writing over 80 songs that introduce jazz to kids and releasing four CDs as a band leader. His most recent is the ambitious Sweet Thunder, a modern interpretation of the Duke Ellington Billy Strayhorn suite, Such Sweet Thunder. Delphio and I sat down for a chat in New York City the day before the 2012 NEA Jazz Masters concert. Given his family, I was curious to know if he ever considered a career that was not in music. Not early on, and it wasn't until I was selected to man the tape decks because I was, you know, old enough and had the inclination to press the, the red button and also to watch the knobs that it occurred to me, you know, after a number of years that maybe that would be happening. But we never really had a master plan. No, I didn't think you did have a master plan because (laughs) you were just so surrounded by it. It just would be difficult to think of another way to go. You know, I guess that's why I've always thought about it from the production end because early on, I remember when I first started playing trombone, Branford and Winton were in a funk band and they needed a trombone. And I was like, man, I just started playing. And, you know, I, I couldn't really get those. Well, I barely knew the scales at that point. So they said, all right, just start recording us. So I started recording. And uh, it's led to some great things. That's my recollection of it. (laughs) Why the trombone? You know, as I thought about it, the instruments tend to mirror the personality. And the trombone is the the member of the band that actually keeps things together. And the jazz band, the trombone, sit in the middle of the band. So they hear everything. The trumpets are in the back. That's because they aggravate everybody. They're always blowing loud. You want to keep them away from the saxophones, who are aggravated at the trumpets. So the trombone, to me, is really the peacekeeper in the band. And that's kind of the function that I have, you know, kind of have that. And also being a middle child, I think I gravitated toward the trombone a lot. Yeah, I can see. It does seem like a good middle child instrument. (laughs) (laughs) And Jason, we say generally the youngest plays drums because that's the first instrument that you can just pick up 
And Elvin Jones was the youngest of 10. Tootie Heath is the youngest of the Heath brothers. I think there are a number of jazz drummers who were the youngest in the musical family. What trombonists influenced the way you played? J.J. Johnson, the most, and then Curtis Fuller, and so many guys. Tommy Dorsey, Irby Green, Bill Watrous. Now, so those guys, people hear me play. I play more in the, the lower register. Some of the guys like Irby Green, Tommy Dorsey, they play in the upper register. They're so smooth, and that's my goal is when I'm playing a ballad in the middle register. It's difficult to play it really smooth and connected to have that kind of sound. When I'm playing in maybe what we consider a swing set, Al Gray, certainly, Tyree Glenn, any of Ellington's trombonists, and then, of course, the traditional J.C. Higginbotham and Vic Dickinson. So it kind of kind of depends. I take a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit everywhere. When you play and when you and the bands that you lead, you swing. Oh yeah. You know, my brothers have been really influential on me. Like the early music of Branford and Winton is always something that I've drawn from and Kenny Kirkland and kind of the harmonies that he used. So I I really use that as the the main basis. And there aren't any trombonists that actually have played in that kind of a setup. Mm -hmm. So I kind of use what JJ did and Curtis and Slide Hampton more, their approach. But musically, that's kind of where my concept, you know, it comes out of their music, which is what I think I would say for a trombonist gives me a certain advantage. The way jazz is played in Europe seems to have less of a blues aesthetic right. than jazz in the United States. Do you think blues is a necessary underpinning for jazz? Well, you know, I think that the first thing we have to address is that improvisation is not specific only to jazz. So the Europeans, what they consider European jazz, what they've done is they've kind of created their own improvisational music, and they want to take away all the important elements of jazz, which would be blues and the swing component, and say, well, now it's European jazz. But that's mostly for two reasons. One, if you said it's European improvisational art music, people would be like, eh, and the other thing is that by calling it jazz, be it a negative or a positive, you then can latch yourself onto Louis Armstrong and Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk and Count Basie and Duke Ellington and this long history of guys that really paid dues and really swung and really played the blues. So it's kind of a catch-22. It's one of those things where if Ellington and the guys were still around, they would say, well, this is why we don't like the term jazz, which is primarily because almost anything can be jazz. So I'd say that to say what I hear in Europe, I think uh, some of it's on a high level, and the improvisational reflexes of the guys are, are you know, they're very astute. But if it's not swinging, it doesn't have that blues element, to me, it cannot qualify as jazz. You played with many people, but five really renowned band leaders, and I'd just like to know what you think about each of them, and we can begin with Art Blakey. Well, you know, I was really young when I played with Blakey, and I always looked at Blakey as the guru for Branford and Winton, specifically Winton when he first came out and he started playing with Art Blakey. So I came along, I was in the band for a little while. I learned a lot from him, but I have to say, honestly, I never really got into the groove. You know, I wasn't in the band long enough. But, you know, Blakey was such a, a great musician and orchestrator and an entertainer. And he understood all the 
aspects of his bandstand and the importance of the presentation of the music, how long your solo should be, what songs you should solo on. I mean, he was just such a master, and I was played with him. He must have been late 60s by that point, so I can only imagine. It's like seeing someone and being around someone that has so much information, and this is at the tail end of their life. So, But I, I learned a lot from him, I think more conceptually than I would say than I did actually from the performance. And you worked with Abdullah Ibrahim. Ironically, I realized later that a lot of my compositions have a similar harmonic structure as some of what uh, Abdullah Ibrahim did. And that was an interesting gig in a number of ways. It centered around the piano trio, and the horns were added on. It was very different in the sense that the horns were not the focal point of the band, as the other bands that I've been in. But I learned a lot from him about a certain type of orchestration, and the way that he developed his music was definitely different from the way that Art Blakey did. So it's very interesting. And it was, as I look back at it, I could really appreciate uh, Abdullah and his music. And Slide Hampton? Slide Hampton, who is a guy that really works hard and has always worked hard. He, to me, is the consummate trombonist. He is a, a great arranger and orchestrator. And again, he knows how it's supposed to sound. So I played with him when we were doing uh, The World of Trombones. And it's very difficult to have 10 of one instrument, 10 trombones or 10 saxophones or, oh, heaven forbid, 10 trumpets. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but Slide is a master of the instrument. And when you're around him, you always want to go practice just from being around him because of his diligence and his seriousness. And uh, he also grew up in a, a musical family around guys like Freddie Hubbard. And he played with Maynard Ferguson. So his experiences are so vast that he had a lot to draw from. And we would talk a lot, and he would give me a lot of, of great and inspirational information about the way that it was in the older days, and all these guys were really trying to sound like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. No matter what their style was, all the musicians in America were looking at these guys as the model for how they wanted to present their music and uh, what they wanted to accomplish. Max Roach. Yeah, Max was <laughs> different. Uh, my great... Max wrote story. Max would always ask the band, what do you guys think? So we played in Boston, and it was a, a So What Brass Quintet. So it was five brass and drums, and no piano or no bass. Uh, we had a tuba. So we played the first set was, I think it was uh, 75 minutes, and we played, and he asked everybody at the end of the set, he says, uh, what do you guys think, y'all? Y'all have anything to, to say about the set? And I said, you know, I said, I thought we were really strong the first 50 minutes. I said, we got to really figure out how to to keep that strength for the, the last 20, 25 minutes. And Max said, okay. So the next set we went up and he said, Donna Lee, Marcellus, you got it. So we were like... <laughs> so at the end of that set, what did he say? Anybody got anything to say? I said, oh, it's all beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful, baby. You know, Max was, was a very elegant and astute, very scholarly type of person. And uh, that's how his music was presented. And he was into art and artwork and just everything about Max. was He was very aristocratic. And 
you know, I really could see how he would command respect. And speaking of jazz, I remember we went to Germany. We were somewhere. I don't remember where we landed. And they came to pick us up in two vans. It was supposed to be something specific, limousine, or et cetera, et cetera. And, it, you know, the, the accommodations could not uh, handle the group that we had. And Max, he just said to me, you know, once they can call what you play jazz, you're in trouble. He said, because, you know, it's like Perlman never has this problem. Yo-Yo Ma never has this problem. And they shouldn't, and neither should I. And, and you know, he was totally right. And that's a, one part of it. He's, oh, it's a jazz band. Oh, just send. Whereas when they say, oh, it's, it's a classical performer, they say, oh, he's going to be at the Symphony Hall. We've got to send the limousine. We've got to make sure the hotel is right. So it's a, a balancing act. Because jazz really does come from the people, and you have to keep that element but at the same time, you want to elevate it to that point where folks can respect what it is that you're doing. So Max is a guy that I would say he kept his head up all the time, and he would not allow you know, a certain level of foolishness to go on. And finally, the great, great Elvin Jones. Yeah, and Elvin was probably the individual that I learned from and I grew the most while in his band, and he was like a father or a grandfather to me. I really learned from Elvin that it comes from the heart, but you have to give everything of yourself when you play music all the time. And what makes, you know, the great musicians great is not how many notes they play or how many skills or how much harmony they know, but it's how much of themselves. Like if you can give 90 to 95% of yourself when you play, boy, which is a lot, every night, all the time, then you've achieved greatness. And that's what Elvin did. It just never took a beat off. And he was just so phenomenal. In a sense, a simple, not a simple person, but just to him, things were simple. You know, you know what you're supposed to do. You just have to do it. He was not one that would really try to make a big deal it's like, you know, if you say, well, what about such and such and blah, blah, blah. And Charlie Parker, he had this kind of concept in Coltrane, and he just, his opinion about it was every individual has to find their own voice. And I remember one time I told him, my belief was that the way that I played was too much in the tradition. So I said, you know, I, I'm thinking what I'm playing is too much in the tradition, and I'd like to take it more outside. I mean, what do you what do you think? And he thought, and he said, he said, well... Once you actually understand the tradition and once you actually master that, then you can take it into whatever direction you want. Okay. Well, <laughs> but that's how, that's how Elvin was, very thoughtful, very to the point. And I always say the, the great thing about Elvin, which I realize is that Coltrane basically grew up as an only child, which is a certain level of selfishness just from being an only child and self-centeredness, Elvin was the youngest of 10. So he understood about the negotiation and the diplomacy that has to occur when you're the youngest in a big family. So they were perfectly suited. It's not only musically, but Coltrane was just one of these guys that just, he could only see his vision and what it was, and he needed Elvin to really support that. And Elvin was a guy that could really see the kind of support that Coltrane needed. So he was such a great person and a great man. And uh, he he left so much 
on the band. Every time he played, he just left it all out there. And uh, that's always what I try to, to reach. Well, let me ask you, Elvin was clearly so important to you as a player. What about as a producer? Your experiences playing with Elvin, was there a mm-hmm. way you could take those and then bring that into the studio? By the time I started playing with Elvin, my production skill set had pretty much been in place. And when I played with him, it was more of developing my concept of, of music and performance more so than the, the studio. Now, he did tell, I did ask him about when he recorded with Coltrane, how they set up. And he just says, well, Coltrane was there and I was here and McCoy and Jimmy. It never dawned on me till then to set everybody up in a circle. I was like, usually we have a different setup. So I think at that point, the next recording we did, everybody set up in a circle. That's why you get that real great stereo sound. Well, that's another whole thing, but yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of sounds that you get, okay, mm-hmm. we have to talk about... <laughs> the dreaded bass direct. <laughs> the dreaded bass direct. First of all... What is a bass direct for those of us who might not know? Well, you know, a bass direct is basically the device that you use to make an acoustic bass turn into an electric signal. So it's the same device that you have electric guitar. You plug it into the amplifier. So that's what it basically does. The dreaded bass direct makes an acoustic instrument turn into an electric signal. So the quality of that electric signal in the early 80s was not very good and in the 70s. And it actually almost made the bass sound more like a guitar. So early on, sixth or seventh grade, when the quest began to really obtain a great jazz sound or sound of recordings that were similar to the older recordings, not like we wanted to imitate those, but the quality of it. The quality of that sound, we wanted to, to, re- to reach that level. And we realized a lot of it had to do with the, the bass direct and the bass. So for the novices, what I would say is you have the, the drums are always the problem. The drums are the loudest instrument. And the bass is, for all purposes, the softest instrument in the group. And the other thing is that the bass, it doesn't travel in one direction. A horn, you put the microphone in front or a voice and it's going straight at the microphone. Whereas the bass sound, yeah, it's a little more widespread. So that's the difficulty is as that bass sound is spreading out, the drums are washing it out and they're making sure that you can't hear it. So what the bass direct does is it gives you that one signal. So now we can say, oh, here's just one signal. We figured out early on we've got to somehow get away from this bass direct. And that's going to give it that warmth and that full bass sound. We have to figure out how to capture that sound.
So when Bradford started playing with Sting in 1985, he did an interview in Downbeat. In the interview, he says, my brother Delphio is at Berkeley College, and he's trying to come up with a microphone that's going to capture more of the acoustic sound on the bass. And a gentleman writes a response the following edition, and he says, Branford has to accept that the bass director is here to stay, and that's just the way the guys play, and this is absurd, and blah, blah, blah. You know, he really took offense to it, which was kind of funny to us, you know. So Maybe he manufactured them. <laughs> yeah, or he probably played with, yeah, that, that might have been it, actually. But uh, I was, what, 21, 21 years old? I said, you know, we ought to do on the record, the next record is, we should say that it was recorded without the dreaded bass direct. So with hopes that this guy will read it. So it really it started off as a, a joke just to say, okay, maybe this guy will read it and say, ah, the dreaded, we didn't use the dreaded bass direct. To obtain more wood sound from the bass, this recording made without usage of the dreaded bass direct. There it is. <laughs> well, it's been a couple of years since I've used it. And it, it stayed around. The next record had the, without the dreaded bass direct, the next record had it. And then what I found was that over the course of even three years, the bassists were more aware of it. And now the entire way that the bass was being recorded in the studios changed. The actual quality of the bass direct improved over the next five years because the bassists started to demand. They said, look, we need more of an, we're going to use the direct for live situations, but how can we get it to sound more acoustic? So there there was actually a bass revolution that I believe we can trace back to the dreaded the bass. dreaded bass direct. <laughs> you started producing very young, mm-hmm. and you sit before me, and you're very youthful looking now. I can imagine how youthful you were looking back <laughs> when you were more youthful. <laughs> okay. And you're producing your father mm-hmm. and your older brother. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to kind of establish authority in the studio, or or was it challenging? Let me put it to you that way. Was there a bit of a challenge? Let me say that if I had known in all the years that I was producing the level or the degree to which my brothers relied on me, I would have benefited them much more and more greatly. But being the younger brother, there was always that younger brother thing where if I had a valid point, they would never let me know, even if they adhere to what I suggested, it was always this thing about, ah. Oh. So it wasn't until I actually stopped producing and I could look back and I see, man, when I see the, the process of it. So it was not difficult to establish authority in the sense that they always knew that, first of all, I had their back. I had their best interest at heart when I was producing. And second of all, it's something I get from my mother. Like my mother, she comes to the house She'll start cleaning up because she just she can't stand to see a mess. So she comes to the house. She's like, "Child, how can you live like this?" And she's picking stuff up and like, "Mom," but there's something about her where she always wants to see things hooked up and correct. So when I'm in any situation in the studio, if I go sit in on the bandstand where guys are moving the mic or fixing the cables, so I'd say from that standpoint, they knew that about me that I'm always going to do whatever I can to really uh, present it very well. Yeah, I, I really do wish that I had known the degree to which I actually could have really taken over and run the, the session. I think it, it would have helped them even even more. You went back to school and you got a master's degree in jazz performance. Did that help you to claim a space as a performer? Well, no. I When I came out with Pontius Pilate's decision in 1991 on RCA, that was kind of the beginning of what really could have been 
a great performance career early on. And a number of things happened. Uh, the first thing that happened was I couldn't come to terms with RCA on the personnel that I was going to use on my recordings. So I got out of the contract, and one of the stipulations was not to sign with a major label for a certain number of years, five years or whatever it was. And I was so stubborn at that point. That was a, a major, something that would have made a change. The other thing was in 1993, when I was on the road, it was only me and J.J. were the only trombonists that actually had their own bands performing. And when Elvin asked me to join his band, and I did that. Elvin Jones. I learned a lot from Elvin, believe me, and it was a, a great experience. But looking back, I always wonder, had I stuck it out and really led my own band at that point, you know, it would have had a different outcome. So I played with Elvin for a number of years, and then it, it kind of had run its course. So I said, uh, what to do? Go back to school, re-energize, regroup, and that's, that's what happened. But I, I led bands all along the way. I had bands at some point all along the way. I was Even before I went to Louisville, I had put out two recordings, and I had recorded with Elvin. Of course, that CD was made right before I went to, to school. I want to talk about your reinterpretation of Duke Ellington's and Billy Strayhorn's Such Sweet Thunder. Yeah, there it is. Which Sweet is Thunder. quite remarkable. Such Sweet Thunder is almost like the Charlie Brown Christmas special music. Like you just grew, you grew up hearing it and it affects you and you don't necessarily know to what degree, but I remember hearing uh, "Such Sweet Thunder" and just that first opening, boom, bump, 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 bump. It's just so strong and you know masculine sounding. It's like guys are going to war or something. It's like and it's all a unison line. It's like man, who would think of that? Anyway, I, I remember hearing that early on, and the opportunity came while I was in Louisville to, to write a, a thesis paper, and the teacher suggested it. And Such Sweet Thunder, we should say, for listeners who might not know, was written by Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, and it's based on characters from the plays of William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, right. In 1956, Ellington and Strayhorn were at the Shakespearean Festival in Stratford-on-Avon, uh, Ontario, in Canada and they commissioned him to write something for the following year. Well, they were still working on A Drum is a Woman. So what I think happened was Duke just told Strayhorn, look, you work on A Drum is a Woman, and I'll handle most of this. So we can look at it and say Ellington definitely wrote the majority of this music. And a lot of the suites, they would collaborate, and you didn't know what was what. But there are very specific movements that you say for sure it's all in Ellington's, you know, his hand. And I think he understood the importance of that connection with Shakespeare and a, a great work of art, very great. It's very different than some of his other works and not as well developed 
in a certain way as far as, you know, the three minute songs. So it's it's easy to misunderstand what it actually is. But it's just very rich and it's killing. Totally killing. Explain what you did with it, because you didn't just reproduce it. How can one explain such a thing? (laughs) Well, let's see. It's very challenging to to work something like that. You know, it's very different when you're writing your own music and you can make certain decisions and make twists and turns. But when you have something that exists. And the thing that I'm most proud of, I played it for Clark Terry and Monsignor John Sanders, who are the only members of the, the original recording that are still with us. And they seem to think that Ellington really would have appreciated. for me was not to disregard what Ellington did, nor was it to recreate what he did. The goal was to use that material and create something that was uniquely mine, but that paid homage and showed respect to the original uh, intent. And it's very difficult to not get lost in your own selfishness or you're with your own ego and say, oh man, I could have done this or I could have done that. And there are, there are only a couple of places where I actually extended the melodic lines. And we did little things like uh, Clark Trey plays one of the great solos in the history of jazz on Lady Mac. And he starts to solo off. That's how the solo starts. So there's a saxophone solo soloing on my version. And he has to start off with that phrase. Now he can take it wherever he wants after that. But when Clark, he heard that, he said, oh, okay. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think the older generation looks at the younger generation. I think the the greatest frustration is that the youngsters don't have the appreciation and the respect to really check out what was done and use it some kind of way. I've never met an older musician who said, man, you guys need to sound like us. All the older musicians say, no, you need to be doing your own thing, but you've got to know what we did. And I think that's uh, the greatest compliment an older musician could pay for me was to say, yeah, man, you, I know you checked out what we did, and that's always been my aim. I'm hoping that the great legacy of musicians, their memory and what they actually created lives on and more people find out about what that is and how great it is. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank right. you. My pleasure. All right. That was Delphio Marsalis. He, his father Ellis, and his brothers Branford, Winton, and Jason were recipients of the first and only group NEA Jazz Masters Award. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Punch's Pilot's Decision, from the album Punch's Pilot's Decision, composed and performed by Delphio Marsalis. Excerpt from Housed with Edward, from the album Trio GP, composed by Branford Marsalis, produced by Delphio Marsalis. All use courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. 
excerpt from Such Sweet Thunder, from the album Such Sweet Thunder, composed by Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, and performed by Delphio Marsalis, used courtesy of Troubadour Jazz Records. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, Jonah Lara explains how creativity works. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.